Welcome to Christmas Eve here at Prodigal. We are so excited you're here. We can't wait for Santa to show up tonight, squeezing down those chimneys. Uh, it's going to be a great, great evening, and we just pray God's blessing on you uh, this Christmas season. This time of the year is all about kids. I have two kids. Uh, my son Dex is five, and my daughter Ivy is a year and a half. But I also have 17 nieces and nephews, uh, and three of them are up here right now. But uh, I love watching them rip into their presents. My son Dex, he's at the age where he just wants to open everyone's present. Like whoever's birthday it is, whoever present it is, hey, can I open it for you? And he gets the same joy as if it was his, just loves ripping those open. And as a parent, I've become one of those parents, one of those crazy parents who love to talk about their kids. Uh, those of you guys who attend Prodigal regular basis, you know this to be true. Uh, but even if you just see me on the street, I'll probably start talking about my kids. I ran into somebody at River Park this past week, and they said, hey, Pastor John, I got your Christmas card. Your kids are so cute. And, and I'm like, thanks. And they said, well, Pastor John, actually, I've been meaning to talk to you about something. You see, there's this, hold, hold up, go back to the part where my kids are cute. Tell me that again. Uh, elaborate just a little bit more. I, I love admiring them, but I also love seeing other people admire them. Uh, I'll be in conversation with someone, and I'm just kind of waiting for them to, like, ask. Like, I've got my phone ready. I've got the pictures right there. And uh, someone will make a joke, and they'll say, well, I'm kidding. And I go, kid, kidding? Kid? Kid? You want to see my kids? Here's a picture of my kids. And I just, uh, you know, I'm, I love them, and I just can't wait to always talk about them. Uh, this past week, uh, in my front yard, we have an inflatable Santa, and my kids love it. My son, Dex, loves to punch it, right? It's like a punching bag, so he enjoys going out there and punching it. And while I was at work this past week, Sarah and the kids are in the front yard, and Dex keeps hitting Santa like a boxing bag. So Sarah keeps telling him, don't do that or you're going to break it. And not long after that, Santa begins to deflate, right? And he's like, Mom, Santa's melting like the Wicked Witch of the West, and... What a world, what a world. And, and so she, you know, kind of gets on him. You shouldn't have been hitting him. Uh, and so they have, a, you know, a little bit of a heart-to-heart. And so I come home, and they tell me all about it and stuff. And uh, uh, then we go to uh, Nordstrom Rack to do a return and dinner. If you were here Sunday, you heard about my night there. But we come back to the house, and Santa's inflated again. And we're like, resurrection! And... Uh, <laughs> Sarah uh, says immediately, Dex, it must be a Christmas miracle. It's Christmas magic. And we talked about that, uh, you know, basically until he went to bed that night. It was Christmas magic, or it could have been the timer on the power socket. But we're going to stick with Christmas magic. And it was an amazing, amazing night. Uh, in my Christmas research in preparation for this weekend, I've read a lot about um, some Christmas magic. The virgin birth right? Mary uh, giving birth to the baby Jesus. And the Immaculate Conception, as it's often called, seems to be a tough pill to swallow for many skeptics. But it's central to the story. And even if you have a more scientific worldview, the virgin birth and the incarnation uh, of Jesus can speak to you through that worldview. Uh, let me elaborate. C.S. Lewis, in his book called Miracles, writes this. It'll be on the screens. And this is amazing. In the Christian story, God descends and reascends. 
Jesus comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. Further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. What's he saying? What's he saying when he says to recapitulate uh, in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life? He's saying that the journey of the human embryo uh, appears to track through the different phases in the history of evolution. Uh, and embryologists have noticed this. And so picture it this way. Uh, it begins with a single, life starts with a single uh, fertilized egg, right? A single cell organism. That's how life begins. Then it moves to uh, multiple cells, two cells and multiple cell organisms, organisms. And then you finally get a lizard on the bottom left, right? And then this lizard apparently turns into a fish that has a, a tail and actually gills and breathes underwater then eventually becomes a mammal and then a human. So from an evolutionary point of view, the history of the fetus is also the history of life on the planet. Whether you see this as symbolic or not, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that even if you do, that only makes the virgin birth more mind-blowing because it says that when God became man, he didn't just appear as an adult. He didn't just insert him as a nine-month-old fetus into the womb. No, he, the God of the universe became a single cell organism. He went through every phase of the life of a fetus. And in so doing, God not only incarnates himself within the human experience, he incarnates himself with the entire history of life on planet Earth. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. God says, I am the creator, you're the creation, but I'm going to fully enter into which that I created and I want to redeem it and rescue it from the inside out. God fully enters into the human experience. It blows my mind. It's Christmas magic. It's real Christmas magic. And tonight as we go through the Christmas story, and as you celebrate with family and friends, be attentive to the Spirit of God moving. Be attentive to the Christmas magic that's real. It's called the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 2 says this, now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him, them, in the end. In the end. Uh, here's the last verse here. Uh, go to the, the next verse, I think, on the screens. Oh, uh, sorry. That's, how did that get in there? It's a, it's a picture of my kids. Um, they're so cute. Tell me more. Uh, Joseph here is from Bethlehem. He had family there. So why, did they, why didn't they stay in someone's house? All of Joseph's family comes down to Bethlehem. Why didn't they stay in Joseph's house? Someone's home. A few reasons. One, first of all, childbirth made a room ritually unclean. 
for a certain period of time, uh, preventing the rest of the family from staying there. And uh, th therefore, you know, he, they wouldn't allow them inside. Uh, it contaminated the whole place. Uh, labor is an intensive and messy event. Our youth pastor and his wife, Delilah, just gave birth to their son on Thursday after 57 hours of labor. Uh, it's a tough ordeal. It's loud. It's crazy. Uh, secondly, Mary would want to give birth in private. She wouldn't want the whole family there. That makes sense as well. Third, a midwife would want the space for delivery. And so given these factors, it's likely that Joseph and Mary staying in a stable was an act of compassion. So they didn't want to render these homes, these roofs, unclean so that their family members and friends couldn't stay there. It very well could have been a nudge from the Holy Spirit that led the family to clear out the stable and prepare that as the place of the birth of the Savior so that Mary could have their privacy and give birth without rendering the house unclean. It's amazing to notice that even in the birth story of Jesus, Jesus is unselfish. He's just a baby in the womb, and yet they're like, no, we don't want to take the house. You guys take the house. We'll take the barn. Mary and Joseph stay in a cave or a barn as a way to love and sacrificially love and serve their families. What is intended to be noticed in this scene is the humility of the scene. The Savior of the world, the Son of God, the true King, is born in a stable. His crib was a manger, uh, a feeding trough for animals where the bread of life spent his first nights. And Mary didn't have the luxuries that we have, right? She didn't disinfect the feeding trough before she laid the baby in it. She didn't have any Lysol, okay? Uh, after she pushed the animals away from her newborn baby, she didn't get any hand sanitizer and squirt on her hands. No, she didn't have those things. There's a humility about the birth of our Savior. Uh, there's something profound and beautiful in the story. When God came, he chose to identify with the lowest and the most humble. Jesus was born in a first century equivalent of a parking garage, Right? Uh, a place that's notably unclean, that's often not well kept, not in a palace, not in a castle. I, I love the story because even in his birth narrative, it shows a commitment to humility and lifelong service, service above self, putting others above their own needs. Is your life characterized by humility and service? I truly believe that it's in the little things that we do for others that we create such beauty and love in our homes and in our world. Tonight, you're all going to go to Christmas Eve dinner somewhere, and you're going to feast. And after that meal, you're going to want to relax. What if instead of relaxing, you were the one who did the dishes? What if you were the one that cleaned up the table? Uh, now, if you go to a restaurant, don't do this, because that's weird. You can't go into the kitchen and go, hey, guys, take five. I got this. Uh, but it's, it's a constant service above self attitude for us as Christ followers. It's the little things that we do for others that give us and lead to a Christ-centered, full, abundant life. Now, often when we look at the Christmas story, we zoom in on the characters, Joseph or Mary or the Magi or the shepherds, maybe even angels. But the Bible doesn't only zoom in on this story. Actually, there's very little of the Bible uh, regarding this story. 
the Bible most of the time zooms out and frames this story, the, 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 the Christmas narrative, in the larger story of Israel. You see, Israel had been waiting for this day for a thousand years. It took a thousand years since King David for the true Messiah, the true king, to show up. What kept Israel going during all these years of darkness? Hope. Hope. G.K. Chesterton says this, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. Have you found this to be true in your own life? How many times have we said, I hit rock bottom? And sometimes we have to hit rock bottom so that we can actually look up and rely on someone, something bigger than ourselves. For Israel, there were countless times that hope in this Messiah, hope for this Messiah, seemed futile. Each adversary Israel faced was more powerful than the next. They had a thousand years of oppression. With each successive conquering empire, the military tactics, the weaponry, the brutality, everything was more lethal. And Israel goes on this for a thousand years. First, they were conquered by Assyria in 722. Then they were conquered by Babylon in 589. Then Babylon was conquered by Persia in 520. Then Persia was conquered by the Greeks in Alexander the Great in 330. And the Greeks were finally overcome and conquered by the Romans in 146. Jesus shows up during the time of the Romans. Each oppressive event was stronger and more fierce than the previous. Have you ever felt like that in your life? You heard the phrase, when it rains, it pours. It, it, one wrong thing happens, and then another thing that you didn't think could get worse, and then it gets worse. The next enemy, the next problem always is greater than the last. Where is God in that? It was pouring on Israel for over 700 years. There had to have been times when they read Isaiah in tears and they cried out to God, where, where are you? Lord, when will you answer? It's pouring down here. Are you just twiddling your thumbs up there? It's in those moments. It's maybe some of you are in that moment right now. You're going through some stuff. God's big enough for your worries and concerns. Uh, don't censor your prayers. You're, you're hearing that from a pastor. Don't censor your prayers. God already knows how you feel inside anyway. So you might as well just rip your chest open and say, God, this is me. I'm bearing it all. Where are you? I need you. I've prayed and nothing seems to happen. Where are you in the midst of it? God's not afraid of those kinds of prayers. He wants your honesty. He wants your heart. We pray as the psalmist does in Psalm 142. It says this, as I sink in despair, my spirit ebbing away, you know how I'm feeling. Know the danger I'm in, the traps hidden in my path. Look right, look left. There's not a soul who cares what happens. I'm up against it with no exit, bereft, left alone. I cry out, God, call out. You're my last chance. You're my only hope for life. It's times like this that the message of Christmas shines brightest. Because on an unexpected night, in an unexpected place, with some unexpected shepherds, in an unexpected young Jewish couple, in an unexpected manger, hope burst forth onto the scene in the form of a baby, the newborn king. They hoped and they waited. Now, hope and waiting are synonymous. They go together. Good things come to those who wait. It, waiting is an art that we don't 
have anymore uh, because of our phones probably. Uh, we want often to break open the ripe fruit when it's hardly finished planting the seed. But that is not how the universe works. We wait. The best things in life come as we wait. Marriage, you gotta wait for the right one. Then engagement, you wait even longer. Then kids, you're pregnant. Okay, nine months need to go by before something else can happen. Often many years longer. For the greatest, most profound, most tender things in our world, we must wait, we must hope. Don't give up on your miracle. The thing you've been praying about, God, why, where are you? Don't give up. Hope, wait, trust, have faith, persevere, keep going, don't give up, don't throw in the towel. Israel waits a thousand years after oppressive, oppressive regime, after oppressive regime. And hope shows up in the most unexpected way. No doubt there were times over the centuries where a Jewish child would go up to their father and their mother and they would ask, Dad, why are we being oppressed if we're God's chosen people? Why isn't God delivering us? Maybe we should follow another God. And I believe these Jew Jewish parents would answer their inquisitive child with Isaiah 9-6. You're familiar with it, read often this time of year. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The, com the passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make it happen. In Hebrew, it's ke yeled yelad lenu ben nathan lanu. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. It's beautifully poetic in Hebrew. The, it's grammatically terrible. It's like when our kids write letters to Santa. Uh, they're in this sentence, there's, there's past, present, and future all morphed together to say the same thing. It's like saying, I have and am currently eating Doritos in the future. All three tenses used in one line. Either Isaiah has horrible grammar, or in hope we can experience the reality of the future now. I think it's the latter. We can experience the future now. That's what hope does. Isaiah was written 700 years before its fulfillment in Jesus. How can someone look so forward to an event 700 years down the road that it actually changes his circumstances now? That's what Jesus does. There is a present reality in putting our hope and trust and future hope in Jesus. The, the story of Israel is them looking forward to this day and the story of us is we look back to the day of its fulfillment. We look back to the Christmas story. We look back to the promised Messiah and how it affects us here and now. In 1989, my mom and dad left everything we knew. We moved across the country from Illinois to California. Uh, they had twin boys, myself and my brother, and our older sister, and also a 150-pound Rottweiler that we called Richie. And he rode shotgun. Um, 
and I was just along for the ride. I was a kid, but it was exciting, right? We drive through Iowa, and all, this is all we saw in Iowa, okay? And as we're driving through Iowa, my dad's making corny jokes, <laughs> like I'm making right now. Uh, and then we, we go past Iowa, and we get to South Dakota, and we go and stop at Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore oh, is incredible. We get there. Richie drops the biggest deuce on this monument that people ran away from him. I was nine years old, and I still remember the scent. <laughs> then we went to Yellowstone National Park. We saw buffaloes. We saw the geyser Old Faithful. It's called Old Faithful because it consistently is supposed to uh, uh, erupt. And we were there for 45 minutes, and it didn't. Not so faithful. Uh, then we went to Salt Lake and saw the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Uh, it was kind of lame. But then we saw this castle in Salt Lake City. Um, and this castle, uh, my parents had to correct me. And they said, that's no castle, John. That's the Mormon temple. And I was from Illinois. I go, what's a Mormon? Uh, I had no idea. That's not a castle. Uh, we got to California. Uh, man, I was so grateful for that journey. Uh, and it was only after that journey, it was only 30 years later, where I realized uh, the difficulty of my parents moving across country, leaving everything they've ever known. Didn't appreciate that when I was nine years old. It's only after that journey that I'm able to fully appreciate it. I have a new sense of, of now creating new memories in my own journey with my family. For Israel, for a thousand years, they looked ahead. Now we look back at the Messiah, and it changes our future moving forward. The baby changed everything. It, 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 it was the pivot point in human history. On Saturday night, I had some friends from high school bunch of those guys come in town for the holidays, and we got together. Some of them I haven't seen in 20 years. And so we get together, we're all hanging out, and some of them are single, some of them are married. We're all swapping stories over the last couple decades. Uh, and then it started to smell bad, and uh, like someone let one go. And then I say in my dad voice, did someone pooter? Did, did someone, someone needs to go potty. I, I don't even know the other words for flatulence. It's pooter in my house because I've got two kids. That's what they call it. And so here I am in front of these guys that I haven't seen in 20 years, calling it a pooter and potty. And uh, they're kind of teasing me, making fun of me. But my son, Dex, when I had him, he changed everything. He changed my language. He changed, he changed how I pronounce things. He changed the meaning of certain songs, certain looks, certain jokes, certain memories. Dex changed everything. Jesus changed it all. It all starts and ends with that baby. And he gives us life, not just life abundantly in eternity, but life abundantly here now. I want to invite Noe and um, Danny up. And uh, we're going to close with this last song together. And this is really our prayer for you and your families. Uh, we exist here at Prodigal to love God and to love people. That's it. We try and keep it really, really simple. Uh, it, you're not just a number. You're not just a number to us as a, as a community of faith, and you're not just a number to God. God knows the hairs on your heads. God knows uh, 
all of your shortcomings and your failures, and he loves us. He loves us. That's the earth-shattering good news of the Christmas story is that he loves us. So would you stand as we sing together, have yourself a merry little Christmas. <laughs>